Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Today, I am happy to welcome back once more the Dodgers team historian and publications editor, Mark Langell. Mark, thanks for being on again. Sam, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, since we last talked, you guys have surged ahead. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, modern baseball and modern Dodgers before we, we get into Larry McPhail era. Uh, my, Mets, my Mets just got swept by you guys, and, of course, me being a Mets fan, I'm going to blame that on the Mets fully. We let you, we let you sweep us. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a roller coaster season, and in the beginning of the year, we're floundering around last place, and, you know, there's a lot of despair and discouragement, but in a way, it was kind of poetic justice because you can have a very high payroll, but it just shows that you need to perform on the field, and suddenly, mm-hmm. just like a light switch in mid-June, it just seems suddenly things came together, not only players coming back onto the team, uh, but also just the way they were playing, and suddenly they got hot and just an amazing streak in the recent period. And who would have imagined that you would suddenly be comparing uh, the 1951 New York Giants, the 1942 St. Louis Cardinals, even going back to the 1899 Brooklyn Superbas in terms of a hot streak. And so it's been fun. It's been a roller coaster. But the thing is about baseball, we all know with six weeks to go, anything can happen. So the team is in a good position right now. Historically, they've had a lot of fun in terms of looking at notes and everything like that, uh, but definitely the race is not over. Well, it's certainly a remarkable turnaround. You guys are nine and a half games ahead of Arizona, and that's, um, uh, you know, they're, they're only seven games back in the wild card, but you guys have a pretty strong hold in that division right now after being down about five or six games. Well, the encouraging thing for Arizona, they have seven games with the Dodgers in September, and so in a way they can just say to themselves, hey, If we run the table, we can control our own destiny as far Mm -hmm. as getting back into that. I think the frustrating thing sometimes for teams, you know, kind of like a Sunday golf tournament, you you can shoot three under par, and if somebody else is shooting a 66, like Phil Mickelson at the British Open, you're not going to be able to control your destiny. Right. And so with these head-to-head matchups with the Dodgers and Arizona, uh, there still is hope for Arizona. And anybody that's a fan of Dodger history, whether it's 1951, 1962, 1991, uh, you can just pick anything you want as far as why you have a reason to be optimistic or why you should be pessimistic or why you should have cautious optimism. Uh, because with all the pennant races in the past, uh, definitely, there's no way you can call something uh, in August as far as being over. Right, exactly. Those head-to-head matchups are, are, are key, like you said. Uh, thinking about talking about the 1951 season, one of the big reasons the Giants were able to make ground on everybody is, is because they, uh, you know, back when there were only eight teams, they played to every team so often. Exactly, and you know, the head-to-head matchup, and and kind of like the 1973 Dodgers. You know, the 73 Dodgers had a, had a great season. Uh, they won, uh, they had a 95-66 and 66 record, and they had a lead in August, 
And people look at that and they say, well, they lost. And actually, with Cincinnati, Ron Say points out, hey, we still play good ball, but Cincinnati played out of their minds. And that was mm-hmm. the case in 1951 as far as, the, you know, the Dodgers played okay, but the Giants just played out of their minds, had something like a, you know, a 40-8 and eight record down yeah. the stretch. And something like that sort of gets lost to history because you see the three-game playoff, you see the Bobby Thompson, Ralph Brank, and everything like that, but you don't see what leads to it, and it's the photo finish. The Dodgers win the pennant in 1965. They outlast the Twins in the seven-game classic. Sandy pitches a shutout in game seven. But what you might forget is they only won the pennant by two games, and they had to finish on a 15-1 and streak. So mm-hmm. a little loss here and there suddenly – you know, the great, uh, you throw up the championship banner and suddenly 1965 is forever a year to be celebrated, uh, but you kind of lose the details uh, when you analyze the pennant races as far as what went well or what went bad. Uh, these hot streaks in September or cold streaks uh, can really, uh, really affect a pennant race. And regarding regarding that, uh, think about like 2007 and 2008 with my Metsies. We win one or two extra games in that stretch, and Philadelphia isn't as storied as they, they had been uh, recently. I, I can remember a year with the Mets, and for some reason it was a Friday, and they decided that they were going to put uh, the extra playoff seats, the auxiliary seats, uh, in front of the box seats. And I just remember thinking, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea because from a construction standpoint, it's nice to be able to plan. It's nice to be able to have that out of the way. But nothing was clinched yet. And it reminds me of the story of the 1969 Lakers when they faced the Boston Celtics. And they were so sure that they were going to finally beat the Celtics. And when the Celtics arrived at the Forum, they noticed there were balloons in the rafters. And the plan was going to be when the Lakers won the championship – the balloons would cascade down onto the floor and they could finally celebrate. And that became a rallying point. The Celtics looked at those balloons, and, of course, after four quarters, the balloons were still in the rafters because uh, the Celtics won game seven. And that became a great lesson as far as uh, for anything in sports. Don't be obvious about your routine as far as, Mm -hmm. oh, let's plan the parade route. Let's get our playoff tickets ready. Let's get this ready. Let's get that ready. You still have to keep the blinders on, put your head down, and everything like that. And there's something about that Mets series that I can remember. Them putting it up on a Friday, and I know it was well-intentioned, uh, but they ended up being unused. On Monday, uh, there was no game. The, the season was over, and there were no playoffs. Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, before we move on, uh, I, I can't mention the uh, the modern Dodgers, uh, the current team, without mentioning Yasuo Puig. That certainly helped. Uh, uh, this stretch recently. He's been an amazing addition to the Dodgers. Uh, Last year, about this time, uh, new ownership was spending its first summer sort of kicking the tires and and seeing what they had bought, and suddenly there's an announcement. They had signed a player uh, that had come out of Cuba for $42 million, and it was, you know, nobody knew anything about him, and that's a heck of a flyer because uh, it's either going to be really, really good or really, really bad. It's not really going to be middle ground. That's a that's a heck of a reach. Mm-hmm. And he was recalled this year, June the 3rd, and just one of those amazing things you'd see out of a movie like Joe Hardy. What is this guy all about, this, uh, this athleticism, the excitement, the power, the speed? And it, it's amazing when suddenly three weeks later all of Los Angeles has Puig 66 T-shirts and, and yeah. there's a debate of whether or not he should be in the All-Star game and everything like that. 
uh, a five-tool talent and just an amazing burst of energy. Uh, you'd rarely see somebody uh, have so much talent yet uh, still learning the game at this level as far as the cutoff men and, and pickoff plays and, and, and things like that. Uh, definitely brought a spark of excitement, but also I think really took pressure off some of the other players because going yeah. into the season you had a very high-profile roster of veteran players and it was kind of like okay are you going to win it you're supposed to win every game you've got this great payroll you've got this uh, roster of big names and and what when it wasn't happening uh you're so except for kershaw you're thinking okay who's going to step up who's going to be the leader and whoever thought this 22 year old kid would suddenly become a catalyst and, and be in the middle of it and uh bring enthusiasm bring this laughter bring this uh uh, this craziness to the club. And so it's been an interesting summer, not only to see his development, uh, but to see how the fans have reacted to Puig. Uh, it, it's just an amazing time, and it's it's only chapter one of we'll see what could be a very long and interesting major league career. Absolutely, and, and best of luck to you. Obviously, uh, me being a Mets fan, I, I'd love to not say best of luck to you, but we're not really in the, the playoff hunt right now. We're just trying to get our, our young kids uh, settled into the major leagues and, and finishing the season strong, and, and that's what that's about. So, that, you know, I think you guys are pretty well set up for the, the playoffs, whereas uh, a team like the Braves, I, I don't believe, even though they're they're as well hot, I don't believe that they are as well set up for the playoffs as you guys are. Well, the beauty of the playoffs is there are so many uh, built and stacked and perfect teams that just sort of go by the wayside, whether it's the – uh, 1969 Orioles in the World Series and, and mm-hmm. losing in five to the Miracle Mets. Uh, you had mentioned the Mets as far as you being a fan. I can remember 1988, the Dodgers lost 10 of 11 games uh, to the Mets during the regular season. Yeah. There was the rain out, and it just looked like Davy versus Goliath in terms of this juggernaut. You had McReynolds, Strawberry, pitching, and everything like that. And if you don't come through in the playoffs, you have a lot of teams, Kansas City Royals, mid-'70s, uh, it's nice to be able to be poised for the playoffs, but then suddenly, all of a sudden, the playoffs happen, and uh, when the other team, when a road team comes up with a victory in a short series, uh, then suddenly it's, it's an amazing time, and I think people forget uh, that the Giants, who won the World Series in 2012, lost the first two games in Cincinnati mm-hmm. last year, and then suddenly roar back and, and win. So it's a matter of catching fire at the right time, trying to catch lightning in the bottle, and then also luck. You just have to have luck. And uh, anybody looking back at championship seasons, no championship team has ever gone through uh, a playoff run uh, without a little luck or a call going their way or a a line drive that barely stayed fair or an opponent's line drive that barely hooked foul. Uh, You look Mm -hmm. back, and uh, even the NBA, I'm sure the uh, San Antonio Spurs are still wondering uh, if they should have fouled Miami instead of letting them have a potential uh, game-time three-pointer. Three uh, you look back and you see the championship seasons and the, the T-shirts and, and everything like that, but uh, the little details, those are the things yep. that determine whether or not you're the champion in October. Speaking of the little details, uh, we can go all the way back to 1938, and it's arguably the crucial turning point in the franchise's history, and, and the modern Dodgers aren't the way they are if it weren't for Larry McPhail coming aboard. So when it comes to Larry McPhail, uh, my first question I'm wondering, because um, Grimes was a carryover before Larry McPhail ever signed up for the Dodgers, 
before they even had the idea to have Laring fail on the Dodgers. My question for you is, is do you think that Larry McPhail would have brought on Grimes uh, in the first place had he not already been signed up? And what was Larry McPhail's overall opinion of the managing job Burley Grimes did? I think he had to look at the overall atmosphere. Uh, Burley Grimes was a veteran player, and it's kind of interesting to see the type of managers they had in the 1930s because uh, Casey Stengel, had, you could already see patterns of, of the type of personality that he was going to have. Uh, he was sort of saddled with a, a bad team in, in 34 and 35 and 36. And when Frenchie Bordergray showed up in spring training with a mustache after doing a movie during the offseason, uh, he, you know, he finally said, you know, you're going to need to shave that because there's only going to be, if there's going to be a clown on this team, it's going to be me. And so first case he decide, you know, goes for the humor. You know, when you're annually, you know, 25 games out of the pennant, you've got to have that uh, – that look, and then 37 Grimes comes aboard, and they finish 33 games out there in sixth place. McPhail comes aboard, and I think he looked at the overall uh, presentation of the ball club. I don't think he felt strongly one way or another with Grimes. I think he looked at the overall picture because the franchise was in trouble. It was in receivership. Uh, there's money problems. There's morale problems. There's ballpark problems. Uh, the uh, heirs of the Abbots and the McKeevers couldn't agree on anything. And so basically nothing was getting done. And while the Yankees and the, the Giants are dominating and doing well uh, in the 1930s, despite the Depression, uh, the Dodgers are not only languishing, uh, but it's a question, I think, of whether or not the franchise could survive another five years without any uh, important leadership. And suddenly this maverick comes aboard, not only with all these different ideas, uh, not only... Uh, having in in his mind night baseball, which he had brought from Cincinnati, and also uh, tearing up the radio boycott in New York and realizing mm -hmm. the power of the marketing, but also taking money and pouring it back into the franchise. You know, back in the 1930s, I'm sure teams were counting the pennies and not wanting to extend themselves. He was kind of like a guy in a casino as far as just let it ride, let it ride. If you don't have some bets, you're not going to have some big payoffs. And he was just very fortunate uh, that some of the ball players that he invested in uh, worked out. He was very lucky that Leo DeRocher worked out as a, as a player manager. And everything sort of came together. It was uh, So I don't really think he looked at Grimes and said, oh, this is a great manager. That I think he was indifferent as far as mm -hmm. um, Grimes as a manager because at that point when you have the franchise – just hemorrhaging money and a ballpark in need of repair and everything like that. You can't look at Burley Grimes and say it's your fault. Uh, right. I just don't think that uh, – I think you can – it's the same thing with modern baseball. Um, if a team has a low payroll or they have a bad roster, you can get a great uh, baseball mind, and there's only so much he can do. So I think he would have been indifferent about Grimes and said, you know what, let's see if we can get a little spark with Leo because maybe there was something that he saw more in Leo in terms of this is a rookie manager, I can control him more, or mm -hmm. I like that fiery temper and uh, I don't mind sparring verbally back and forth with him uh, because maybe Grimes just sort of said in those meetings whatever and Larry right. didn't necessarily see that uh, either as a challenge. Maybe he liked Leo more then he disliked Grimes. I just never picked up on anything uh, that Grimes did uh, that was an irritant to McPhail. I think just in the bigger picture, he said, hey, if we're going to put more money into the club, if we're going to have a fresh start, 
we might as well have a fresh uh, uh, fresh uh, face in DeRocher, first as a player manager, and then he settled on just being the manager. Right. Now, it's speaking of Grimes, uh, uh, you know, being a little bit of an irritant, though, uh, there's there's a story that continues to come up, but I, uh, in my research, I wasn't able to find it in the New York Times, which is one of my main sources because of the uh, the online accessibility I have. Uh, but what I was able to find uh, regarding this this uh, when Grimes told the press that the Dodgers are going to finish last, but then somebody said, "What about the Phillies?" And he's like, "Oh, oh, right, I forgot about the Phillies. Put say say that we're we're going to finish seventh. I was able to find it in the Montreal Gazette and Google News, April 9th, 1938. Do you know any more information about this? Because, you know, it, it wasn't the, the April 9th, 1938 New York Times paper. I wasn't able to find anything about it. So did this actually occur or, or was it just something that, that got a little twisted? I don't think it would have surprised. It probably did occur, but I think, you know, when you have – uh, a, a manager of a sixth-place team popping off about maybe finishing seventh, I just don't think it was would have gotten that big of a deal attention. What happens is when a guy like Bill Perry pops off and says, mm-hmm. is Brooklyn still in the league, then all of a sudden you have a problem when that can be a rallying point in September and your New York Giants get knocked out because you remember that quote. If a losing manager has a has a quote about continuing to lose, I just don't think uh, that would create that much of a, a controversy because uh, it's the same thing in terms of Uncle Robbie, uh, Wilbur Robinson, during the bad years of the late 1920s and early 30s when, you know, they would just make, if, if there was three guys ending up at third base, you know, they'd just sort of make a joke out of it and say, can't yeah. anybody play this game? And so uh, I, I think for a losing manager to sort of say, yeah, we'll probably lose again, that type of thing, uh, totally different meaning uh, than if Bill Terry on top of the world pops off and says, "In Brook- is Brooklyn still in the league? And it's the kind of thing that reminds me of what they say about the nickname of the Brooklyn Bums. It's okay for the Brooklyn fans to call them the Bums because that's their team. That's their beloved neighborhood. Those are their players. But don't you dare, Yankee fans or Giant fans, <laughs> call them Bums. You can't call them that, but we can call them that because we call them that affectionately. Exactly, and uh, it reminds me of the scene uh, uh, where Robert Joyce uh, shot a uh, shot a gun off because he was being egged on by some Giants fans in a bar in 1938. Well, it, it's a rivalry that goes back to the 1880s, and uh, sadly, you have those incidents, uh, and uh, you have a lot of emotion at that time time uh new york giants and and Ebbets field and uh you know getting back to mcphail it it's just an amazing turnaround and i just don't think people appreciate the fact that this man pretty much saved the franchise uh and put in some things that uh, were revolutionary at the time but also uh courageous in terms of he had a vision uh he was driven he didn't have much to work with and suddenly, not only are they in the pennant, win the pennant in 1941, uh, but they're in good shape in 42, and he still has the fortitude and the, and the vision at that point. And he burst into the clubhouse in August of 42 
and basically told the players, you're not going to win it this year. I don't like your attitude. I don't like the way you're working. I, I, you're just not taking the competition seriously. And supposedly Dixie Walker wanted to bet him, saying, oh, yeah, I'll bet you such and such that we're going to win. And he couldn't take the bet, obviously, because there's no uh, gambling. Uh, mm-hmm. But sure enough, the great Brooklyn Dodgers of 1942 uh, had 104 victories, yet it was uh, two games shy of the Cardinals. And uh, McPhail was absolutely right. Uh, it was a doomsday prediction, and unfortunately for the Dodgers, it came true that year. Exactly, and then McPhail went off to the Army. What was always interesting to me about um, Ken Burns' baseball was that at that moment, they, they um, regarding Larry McPhail leaving, Ken Burns said that he got fired, but that's not the case. He left on his own accord, am I correct? Oh, you are correct, because he had been in the Army before, and he had a, he had a famous story. What, if you went to Larry McPhail's office uh, in Brooklyn, there was an ashtray, and it wasn't just any ashtray. Uh, he was actually, in 1919, uh, he decides that he and some Army buddies, uh, they're going to go on a uh, mission to try to arrest the exiled German Kaiser Wil- Wilhelm and-, and bring him to the Paris Peace Conference to be tried for war crimes. And they got as far as the Kaiser's office, and I guess they chickened out at the end, but he swiped an ashtray and put it in his coat as a souvenir. I mean... <laughs> I, I mean, it's just mind-boggling if you try to uh, play connect the dots and, and uh, say, you know, could you imagine Ned Coletti, you know, trying to kidnap the Kaiser? And, I mean, that this is what we're dealing with as far as a person in a very high baseball position as a youth just having this notion that he could uh, arrest the Kaiser. So, obviously, if you think you can arrest the Kaiser, you obviously think you can turn around a baseball uh, franchise. You obviously think night baseball is important. You obviously think that new uniforms are important. You obviously think that the radio boycott in New York is pointless, and and radio is a wonderful way to market the team. And then after 42, he's like, you know what? I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very patriotic, and a lot of the a lot of the uh, uh, ball players had already gone to the uh, gone to World War II, and so he decides that he's going to be a uh, he's going to go back into the army, and uh, he resigns as president in September of '42. And he and at the end of the war, he rose into the ranks of a, a colonel. And so this is just a, a very unique person. This is somebody headstrong uh, that not only was a success in Cincinnati as far as a string of department stores, but just he had that business acumen, and you also uh, combine that uh, with patriotism and. Uh, wanting to be in the Army. He just wanted to be in the action. He wasn't necessarily a baseball man. He was just a very good businessman, and at that point his business was baseball, and the Dodgers were fortunate because his genius that he sprinkled on the borough of Brooklyn from 1938 to 1942 saved the franchise. Exactly. Well, let's go back to him and Leo, Larry, uh, Larry McPhail and Leo DeRocher. Uh, what do you uh, remember the first story uh, regarding regarding them clashing? What, what what was the first time that they really clashed on something? Uh, when, first, uh, when Leo when Leo was manager, I think the first time they clashed was over Pete Reeser uh, because Leo did not know the circumstances as far as Pete Reeser joining the Dodger organization. 
the Cardinals have gotten in trouble uh, for signing a bunch of minor leaguers and then trying to stash them, and they were supposedly set free by Landis and, and things like that. Somehow there was an arrangement uh, between Branch Rickey and Larry McPhail to hide Pete Reeser on a Dodger farm club. And in spring training, you know, this, this 19, 20-year-old kid suddenly, you know, looks like a phenom. And so Leo starts to play him. And he got something like 10 consecutive hits. And he kept getting these notes from uh, McPhail saying, stop playing Reeser. And it was sort of, why would you say that? It didn't make yeah. any sense. And, and Leo's like, I'll play whoever the hell I want. And they butted heads, and, and it turned out that that exposed Reeser, so he wasn't able to be hidden anymore. And that was one of the first things in terms of uh, Larry getting mad at, at Leo because he wouldn't do what he said. And he's like, look, I've got, uh, I've got this great prospect. You're out of your mind if you think I'm not going to play him. Now, flash ahead to the pennant race in 1941. The Dodgers clinched the pennant on the road, and they're taking a train back to Brooklyn. And Leo's on the train, and one of the funny stories is Tony Martin, the entertainer, is on the train, and uh, he's about to give a speech, and all of a sudden they just start throwing food at him and say, shut up, this isn't your party, sit down, you know, that type of thing. Leo says the train is not going to stop because he doesn't want the ball players getting off ahead of time. He said, I don't care if they tear your clothes off. They've been waiting for this since 1920. You've won the pennant. They love you you're going to go and be part of this reception. Larry McPhail is at the second-to-last stop waiting for the train so he can join the party. I think now, that was Harlem, right? Yeah, this is something totally innocent, but Leo has no idea that Larry McPhail is waiting on the second-to-last stop to pick up the team. So they go straight without stopping back to Brooklyn. And Larry McPhail sees the train go by and assumes that Leo DeRocher does not want Larry McPhail to have his moment in the sun, and he's mad. He's fuming. Even though they've won the pennant, he not only hates Leo, he wants to fire him and everything like that. And they get into it that night. How could you not stop the train and everything like that? And, again, Leo doesn't know what the heck he's talking about because he didn't know he was there. They go back and forth, back and forth. Fine, you're fired. So Leo goes to bed that night. He's fired. The next morning, Larry McPhail comes down uh, with a carnation in his uh, lapel, like acting like nothing had ever happened, and calls Leo's room, and Leo's like, "What do you want? I don't, I don't work for you anymore." Oh, Leo, let's just put it. You know, he just acted like nothing had happened. Let's try to figure out how to beat those Yankees, and that's yeah. how it was. Uh, one of the quotes from Larry McPhail's grandson was uh, talking about Leo, uh, or we're talking about Larry and his uh, alcohol, and he said, "There's a thin line between genius and an insanity." And he said that it was the line was so thin, you could see him drift back and forth. And he said, you know, he was sober. Uh, when he was sober, he was a genius. He was a brilliant. He was brilliant when he had one drink, and a raving lunatic when he had too many. And this is the person that you were dealing with, just this talented person. But with the mood swings, uh, you never know what you might get on a certain day. Uh, but ultimately, everything he did was always to help. Uh, help the Dodger franchise. It may not have helped the employees around them uh, if there was a tirade or, or something like that, uh, but everything benefited the Dodgers. And by 1941, uh, four years after being in receivership and almost out of money, they are in the World Series. An amazing turnaround. 
Absolutely. And speaking of helping the Dodger franchise, he certainly did that by bringing Babe Ruth on as a, basically a, a, you know, walking, a walking, a, a, you know, I'm, I'm missing the word. I had the word, but uh, he's a billboard for baseball. Exactly, a walking billboard, and he comes on and he's he's crushing uh, batting practice home runs onto Bedford Avenue. Uh, did did Larry McPhail have any inclination uh, regarding Babe Ruth as a as a, a coach uh, as a manager, or was that completely all for show? No, I don't think he knew at that point because the timing is very curious. Because in the first couple months, you know, Dodgers aren't necessarily doing anything in '38, and so all right. They're not winning on the field. We can't really get new players. I'm in New York. What can I possibly do to bring, uh, you know, to bring interest to this franchise? Now, obviously, you could have sort of a one-day stunt. You could have a guy, you know, shot out of a cannon or, you know, stuff like that. Or Eddie you know, Adele, have, for, for instance. Yeah, have a Max Patkin type do something. But suddenly he said, you know what? Babe Ruth was a great, great person in baseball, and there's absolutely no reason that he shouldn't be working baseball. Here, here he is local. And so what he decides, and this is June, suddenly you hire a guy to be a coach in June, and suddenly you've got the, the cameras coming out, and uh, you've got the batting practice and everything like that. And I think that it was a test period to see, okay, what does he have? Because he had managerial aspirations uh, with the Yankees. It didn't work out. He didn't go to their AAA club. And so, you know, Babe Ruth, after his Boston Braves career in 1935, you know, he's sort of floundering. So by 38, he's happy to take this job. Now, if there were any managerial aspirations that McPhail had, they were sort of squashed by Leo because you have to go back 10 years earlier to when both Leo and Babe uh, were with the Yankees. And there's a story that uh, there was some money missing and they somehow they caught DeRocher uh, taking money out of, uh, out of either Babe Ruth's uh, locker or something like that. And so, so the way the story goes, just Babe Ruth beat the heck out of Leo, just pummeled him and everything like that. And there's another story that uh, Bay, that Leo DeRocher had taken Babe Ruth's watch and flashed ahead to the 1950s whenever the Dodgers were playing Leo's Giants. Guys like Don Newcomb would stand up in the dugout and yell over, hey, Leo, what time is it? Check your Babe Ruth watch, you know, just to upset him. <laughs> well, going back to 38, uh, Larry and um, uh, Leo and Babe Ruth uh, got into it after a game. And what Leo did he accused Babe of not knowing the signs, and Babe Ruth is sitting down, and before Babe is able to stand up, because Babe is still a, a big figure, Leo pushes him into the locker. And I think what he did was, by doing that and making like a fight type thing, Babe wasn't necessarily able to stand up at that point. And then with other people around, he can do the hold me back, hold me back routine. And it would be one of those, you know, basically he's trying to make Babe uh, Ruth look bad. And so at the end of the year, Larry says, you know what, it probably won't work out with uh, uh, Babe as manager, and if he's got the hard feelings with DeRocher, it probably wouldn't work out to be a coach. And so uh, at the end of the year, Babe Ruth leaves the team. It wasn't necessarily uh, uh, bitterness the whole year between Leo and Babe. I think just Babe was trying to uh, see where he was in life in terms of what he wanted to be, what he wanted to do. The summer of 38 was a good time to be with the Dodgers. And except for that one incident, there weren't any other times 
that there, it was necessarily a strained relationship between DeRocher and Ruth because remember, DeRocher's still auditioning for McPhail for the full-time gig, so he's not necessarily going to let this feud with Ruth linger. He's got to show himself as leader. And so uh, if there was any test period as far as who can be the better manager, uh, it was probably Leo starting that fight to say, look, I'm the guy, I'm the guy that can fight. I can do it. And, you know, Ruth was an instructor for a couple months, and then that was it. Right. There's a famous photo, or or at least in my mind, it, it's a famous photo of of Dave Grimes and Leo sitting on on the dugout steps, or sitting in the dugout, and and Leo has this this look on his face, like really, like really, you're here, really. <laughs> That's the beauty of this photography, because whether this stuff is posed or staged or anything like that, uh, sometimes pictures can and can tell a thousand words. And uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, some of these photos can be staged, but then you sort of wonder what's going through their minds sometimes because uh, Leo hadn't established himself yet. Uh, he had had moderate success as a ball player, uh, but as a manager, he was in the same boat as Grimes. Uh, you didn't see Grimes managing for the next 30 years uh, like Leo would. For some guys, it works out. Other guys, it doesn't. Exactly. Uh, you, Mark, you were filled with knowledge, and I'll, we'll, we will certainly have you on again to, to keep going over Dodger history as, as detailed as you can. Well, Sam, it's not only a pleasure to be on your show, but I admire what you're doing as far as this work, and I think it's wonderful that you're doing all this research of a wonderful franchise in Brooklyn, and I wish you all the success, and uh, uh, I look forward to hearing your next interviews you have with other people. It's really fun to hear. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much, Mark. You're welcome, Sam. Take care. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Join us next time. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.